0: Welcome to Ethics in Action,
1: brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs.
0: So good morning. This is Nir Ezekovich and this is the Ethics in Action podcast. And my uh, guest this morning is my colleague and friend, uh, Chris Zern from UMass Boston. Hi, Chris.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Good, good. Uh, and uh, Chris has just written uh, a big new book uh, called Splitsville, a uh, democratic argument for uh, breaking up the United States. And I thought it would be Very cool to uh, have Chris on and ask him uh, about it. So uh, Chris, dramatic book, dramatic title. Um, So uh, maybe tell us a little bit about um, what the argument of the book is and uh, uh, maybe as interesting why uh, you decided to write it.
1: Yeah, so the, the, the book is kind of a brief for a national dissolution. That is splitting up the United States one nation state into several new nation states. And the reason to do that, as far as I can see and as far as I can figure out, is it's probably the only way we can save representative democracy in the United States going forward. Um, So that's basically the idea. We need to have a national dissolution in order to save representative democracy for the current citizens of the United States, unfortunately, in um, new nation states. So that that's the big idea. There's, there's, there's more content in there, but I suppose I'll start where kind of the book starts. Um, you know, I'm a political philosopher. I think about political systems and especially the institutions of constitutional democracy. And, um, you know, a major candidate of one of the only two political parties in 2016 running for the presidency said that he was unwilling to commit to the outcome of elections. And I thought that is really remarkable. But what was most remarkable to me was not that there was some weirdo saying, I don't care about democracy. It's that the rest of America kind of just yawned, kind of just said, yeah, that's fine. If he wins, he gets it. If he loses, he should get it too. Um, There were lots of ordinary citizens and political elites who no longer seemed committed to the outcome of democratic elections. And of course, the pattern repeated in 2000s and we saw what happened in 2001. Um, in fact, that candidate then president wasn't actually willing to um, obey the outcomes of elections. Luckily, just enough political officials were, but more and more of our fellow citizens and more and more and more worryingly, more and more of our political elites are no longer committed to the outcomes of democratic elections and I thought that's like just a kind of necessary condition of democracy I've got fancy theories of democracy I hang out with fancy theorists of democracy Um, but at the end of the day if you don't have people following elections you can't have democracy Uh, it's not probably the most important thing about democracy it's not the most wonderful thing Uh, or anything like that, but it's a necessary condition. Just like oxygen is a necessary condition for your car to run, it's the only way an engine runs is if you have oxygen. If you don't have oxygen, your car doesn't run. If you don't have a commitment to the outcomes of elections on the part of ordinary citizens, and especially political elites, then you can't have democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think we have... Structures in the United States that systematically encourage people to undermine that democratic pre commitment. Hmm. And I think that breaking up the United States is probably the only way to overcome those incentives. So there's more story there, but that's the basic idea. I was sort of shocked by the blithe indifference to obeying elections that was evinced not just by the candidate, but especially by uh, the candidate's fellow political elites and ordinary citizens that's continued to grow as far as I can tell um, since then.
0: And uh, we'll get to uh, the the much more content as you say, uh, uh, hopefully in a bit, but just to uh, clarify. So the idea would be to break up the United States into splinters that can agree on how elections would work?
1: Yeah, the idea is something like this. Um, we have a kind of funky combination. This is the sort of diagnosis of constitutional structures and current changes in uh, in the media, in public environment, in um, norms, and um, in capture of government. Um, Those changes in combination with these sort of obscure constitutional structures encourage people to grab power without majority support. Mm-hmm. And when you're encouraged to grab and retain power without majority support, you have very strong incentives to undermine the commitment to democracy. Um, and those are sort of like one way ratchets. So, yeah, the idea is basically we can agree to disagree, just like in a divorce You don't have to figure out everything that's wrong and you don't have to all come up with the same solution. All you agree to do is go your separate ways. And so I think in that sort of negotiated political divorce, we would have an opportunity to reboot constitutional democracy on better grounds that didn't have these sort of arcane um, incentives that are left over, frankly from 230 years ago.
0: So let me just ask you one follow up there. Uh, in terms of the um, psychology of this that you refer to. So if, uh, uh, you know, Trump did what he did and uh, uh, as you say, compellingly, people essentially yawned. um, Is there, uh, what's there to uh, guarantee that they uh, wouldn't also yawn in the new splits uh, when the relevant sort of circumstance comes up? So a sort of, very smart, competent, you know, a technor- technocratically capable leader is going to say, Listen, in my new New England split or in my new California split, you're not taking care of global warming. I can tell you just don't know. I'll just sort of do sort of executive uh, uh, grab. Um, aren't you worried that people are just into the habit of yawning?
1: Um, that is a worry. And when you say, What's the guarantee? there are no guarantees. So um, to, to my mind, these kinds of comparisons between staying the course and splitting up, you always have to pay attention to what the baseline is and then look at what you're comparing. So you've got the risks of 330 million people under a system that doesn't have representative democracy. Let's say you split up the United States into five nations. That's sort of the map I think is, is probably the most reasonable. Um, But, you know, it could be two, it could be four, it could be six, let's say five. Um, Then maybe one of those five, those 60 million people, those 65, those 70 million people, maybe they do have an electoral authoritarian government, something that looks like Turkey. That's better than having 330 million under an electoral authoritarian government, something that looks like Turkey. So one question is, what's the baseline? There are no guarantees. But we do know from the 230 years of experience with constitutional democracy, both in America and in the 50 states and in many, many nations the world over, what kinds of things tend to cause nations to go into democratic decline and which don't. And if there are incentives to undermine um, the capture and retain of power by uh, majority or plurality support by minorities, then you're going to get this kind of democratic backsliding. So my hope is, and maybe it's a vain hope near, and that's, that's true. But my hope is that at least four of the five and probably five of the five nations would reestablish decent democracies that look pretty similar to ours, but mm-hmm. have the tweaks necessary so that they, they wouldn't get into the downward ratchet. Now, the final thing I'll say is just the historical evidence. Um, We do have 230 years of people paying attention to actual election outcomes. There is one exception to that, and that was at the beginning of the Civil War when the South basically didn't accept Lincoln's election. And I think that's the exception that proves the rule. We have the psychological dispositions, the educational uh, enculturation, the kind of dispositions and legal structures the institutions we we know mostly how that works so that winners take office and losers don't take office we've been doing that for a long time and we've done it successfully under a lot of stress so my guess is that new splitsville nations would also be able to do that no guarantees Mm. but i think the weight of the evidence is that Mm. most of them should be able to do that pretty well
0: yeah is is I wonder, Chris, is your your sense, or is there a sort of latent argument here is that in the end, what uh, makes democracies work is a kind of uh, ideological uh, homogeneity. And um, if that's the case, because the splits I'm assuming would be much more part of what would uh, allow them to function is that they would be more ideologically homogenous than the whole United States now. And um, for you, at least, if that, if something like that is true, does it indicate a kind of pessimism more broadly about the chances of a diverse, multicultural, whatever, uh, uh, liberal democracy?
1: Yeah, so I wanna take the first um, thing that you said, which is that the splits would enable much more ideological homogeneity in each of the nations. And I think that that's a little bit of a misnomer. I think the first time people hear this idea, they think we're going to split into, for instance, red teams and blue teams. And my understanding of politics says that that's impossible. Politics is about the stuff we disagree about, but we need to have agreement on. Everybody's got to drive on one side of the road or the other. We need an agreement on that, but we might disagree on which is best. That's a silly example, but you get the idea. We need shared common rules in order to get collective benefits, but we disagree about what those rules should be. We know we need rules against murder, but whether some particular standard of intent is the right standard of intent or the right standard of premeditation is the right thing we disagree about that stuff and that's what politics is it's coming to agreements that we need to have shared rules at least temporarily when we don't agree ideologically so that's when we have politics so even if we so just to put it back even if we split into red and blue we'd have politics in the red states and the blue states. We'd still have stuff we disagree about. So this idea isn't to get rid of disagreement. It's rather to set up institutions that manage disagreement and maintain democracy going forward. Because there is another way of managing disagreement. And that's basically, you know, you can call it monarchy. You can call it tyranny. You can call it oligarchy, right? There's maybe a few people, whatever it is. But if you just have a few people making decisions who can't be run out of office... By elections, then you have something that's not a democracy. And I think, and I guess this is the faith I have near, Americans want to live in a democracy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They want to be able to control their rulers. So I kind of presuppose that. as yeah. if, if you think actually like having a dictator running things would be better, my book is not going to convince you
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I'm not giving an argument for democracy. I'm just presupposing that we Americans really want it. And some of the evidence of that is that even when people are undermining democracy, actually they've been doing it in the name of democracy.
0: Huh. So I, I I guess my one follow that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Uh,
1: so just let me yeah. see, just to, just to hammer home the point, the point of splitting up the nations is not to get ditto, head what I call ditto head nations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The point is to manage the disagreement productively so that, we can have democracy going forward
0: right right um and so essentially you know to get back to uh the conditions uh for deliberative democracy where people agree on the rules of the deliberation and the different splits i just one follow up question to that is um How then do you get to a map of the different splits if the people who disagree on the rules or uh, flaunt and reject the rules are sort of uh, um, uh, spread kind of sporadically through the different states? It it almost seems like for this version uh, that you just articulated to work, you would need to have some population movement.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, one, I try and give the argument, and this is, you know, a sort of a longer development in the book, but that um, if we could redirect our dislike of one another into regionalism, into regional hatreds, then all we got to do is agree that we hate them, uh-huh. Right. So all we got to agree is that we Northeasterners hate Westerners and Westerners hate, you know, lower uh, middle folks and lower middle folks hate Southeasterners, right? So you just got to get Floridians hating Californians, not too hard to do. Texans hating Massachusettsans, Massachusetts Massachusetts citizens, and so on and so forth. If you can redirect some of those animosities, and I got to say, political entrepreneurs are pretty good at stirring up animosities. If you can regionally redirect them, then the only rules that you need to agree to is we got to split up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? You no longer have to say we have to run democracy like this or something like this. We just say we have to come to a divorce decree.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And once the divorce decree happens, then there's a separate set of steps where nations reconstitute their constitutional democracies. Then they might do all kinds of things. They might just redouble the American system on a smaller scale. They might import a parliamentary system. Uh, They might go for multi-party democracy. They might go for two-party democracy. They might go for, you know, then they're going to agree on the rules. So that's a political problem of negotiation. But we do that kind of thing relatively regularly Mm
0: -hmm. so are 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 you saying that in the splits are you saying that in the splits part of the political identity of the different regions would be their kind of uh cultural animosity towards the other regions and that that cultural animosity would become more benign because it's no longer because in some basic way the stakes would be would be lower
1: well i mean um what you, I'm not sure it would be more benign, but the regional animosities would have driven the split uh-huh. and then the split would happen and then we'd have politics once again. My uh-huh. idea is something sort of like this. There are these hot button issues. I mean, you can, you can name them, abortion, uh, immigration, um, gun rights. All of these are easily recast in terms of regional suspicions. Regional dislikes, regional negative affect, to use the fancy um, terminology of the scholars, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Texas people get mad when they can't carry their weapons in New York City. and New York City, people get mad when Texas weapons come in over Texas borders despite Texas gun laws. Mm-hmm. These are existential matters. Abortion rights in the same way have become cross-border things, just Mm -hmm. to use the Texas and New York again, right? right? Texas bounty hunters might come to New York state and try and get a civil suit against somebody who has sent abortion pills to Dallas. Right. And New York folks are going to be similarly, you know, frustrated about things. So it's easy then to think of these sort of hot button issues, which could be as it were attractors for the regionalized Um, conflict we already have this to a large extent yeah um it's not that big of a change of where american politics is
0: well and
1: and that's just the energy that gets the divorce going
0: right and and after the divorce um and i do think that's a good analogy including the kind of dynamics of it where there's you know shock and uh, uh, a great deal of uh, recrimination and animosity in the beginning, and then it settles into a new kind of uh, uh, modus vivendi, etc. But after the divorce happens, I guess this is a recasting of my earlier question, what happens okay. to the, in in the Texas region, however that uh, consists in uh, the map that you're thinking about, what happens to the people in say uh, the Austin area who still sort of have affinities to the you know uh, uh, northeastern uh, uh, zeitgeist
1: right so very good question because um, one of the things I was burying as it were behind the we're always going to disagree that's what politics is it's the management of disagreement um, is that even if you have these regional splits it won't um, overcome some very substantial what's often called now the urban rural. Split. Um, so you have very large ideological disagreements that look like they're getting sort of freighted with a fair amount of psychological um, energy. They're, they're pretty negative um, between urban and rural people. Um, I don't think that those are going to go away. Once again, Splitsville is not to get situations where everybody already agrees. If you get situations where already everybody agrees, you don't need politics, right? Um, If you need politics, then people aren't going to be agreeing. So you're still going to have a fair amount of animosity um, or contestation, I should say, over particular kinds of issues. And what politics does is it manages those disagreements. The other thing to say is that there is a serious worry that I have about this kind of arrangement that one of the new nations might want to be... Um, let's just say oppressive in some way. Okay. Um, so you can imagine uh, one small nation creating some kind of a, a white ethno-nationalist state that also had sort of um theological um pretensions to political rule. Um, that would be very oppressive for people who weren't in the preferred categories. So I insist on, and this is almost one of the only things I insist on beyond the need for basic elections, free and fair elections with universal enfranchisement, is what I call sort of anti-oppression provision. And the way to deal with that is to insist that in the breakup, there have to be very robust emigration and immigration rights for former citizens of the United States So people really have to be able to vote with their feet on their regions and probably for two or three generations. Hmm. In other words, if you've got like a Northeast nation, people in the Northeast must be able to move to the Southeast if they can't stand, you know, you know, being ruled by, you know, governor Bill de Blasio or something like that. Right. They must be able to move to get Ron DeSantis as their governor or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That, that kind of robust, Ability to leave your new nation and move to one of the new nations is, as it were, a, um, a moral sine qua non, I think, for my proposal. If that doesn't happen, then you have the real danger of some kind of internalized oppression um, yeah. that I think is too significant of a danger. But also, and this is a thing I will say, that foot voting, as it were, is a kind of exit from your old nation that can either directly impact your nation's desire to govern better and to be more democratic, either through leaving or through the threat of leaving. So foot voting actually has a a, a positive value in making governance better and making it more democratic because the different nations are now gonna wanna be competing for immigrants coming into their Uh, Into their new nation. And they're going to compete on that on, you know, the standard things that states compete on right now, Hmm. right? Uh, Good economies, decent governments, um, trash pickup that works, right? Elections that are run, places where you don't have tyrants who are trying to rule every part of your life and so on and so forth. Um, So that kind of foot voting between the two nations is not only morally required, but I think would actually be a real positive in promoting the internal democracy of the new nation states.
0: Yeah, and might mitigate against this kind of uh, moving around, which in the end would and in, uh, w- which would result in sort of ethnic homogeneity. So this kind of competition model that you're suggesting, the competition over citizens that is uh, occasioned by the threat of foot voting uh, might actually keep the different splits more diverse than we uh, uh, would initially think.
1: And, and it does happen between the 50 states. I mean, each of yeah. the 50 states is sufficiently internally diverse. Yeah. Um, and we have massive migratory patterns, right? So, um, you know, we have um, uh, uh, very substantial migratory patterns going towards the southeast right now and towards the southwest. I mean, that's where the migrations are going, right? So th- those states are attractive in some ways. Now, here's the thing. In the current United States, you can't do any foot voting. Because despite all of the talk about people, they're going to go to Canada as soon as they don't like the United States. They find out very quickly. It's not actually easy to move to Canada. You don't get to just move to Germany if you want to, yeah? Um, The EU and Canada aren't just like open and welcoming arms to American citizens, right? So we can foot vote from our individual states, but we can't foot vote really outside the United States. It's not nearly as easy. But if my scheme, as it were, went through, at least for a few generations, there would be a fair amount of foot voting. And one would hope that the foot voting would be able to continue, though you can imagine after three generations, some state saying, we're going to close all our borders to any kind of immigration.
0: Yeah. Um, Uh, Good
1: luck with that economically, but you you can imagine one doing that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Listen, Chris, I know it's not central to your uh, uh, argument necessarily, but do you want to say a word about... uh, what one of uh, uh, the maps that you're thinking about looks like?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I propose these maps as a sort of thought experiment. I don't think that any expert can draw a map and say this is the way things ought to be, either morally or technically. These are political matters for us to negotiate. So one of the big things in that divorce decree is going to be negotiating those borders. But one that I think makes sense is what I've been calling the five-nation map. So that's basically the Northeast all the way down to DC um, and maybe even parts of Northern Virginia, um, all the way over to the Western border of Pennsylvania. Um, Then there's the Southeast, which is really the traditional Confederate South. Um, And then there's two sort of middle of the country sections an upper one, basically from Ohio over to Oregon, Washington, and a lower one from um, um, you know Louisiana over through Arizona, right? So one sort of centered in. I mean, one way you think, and then there's a western region which is basically the west coast, um, California, Washington, Oregon, um, and Hawaii. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: Alaska would probably go in the upper middle section. Mm-hmm. Um, those those are more or less geographical slash um cultural regions that 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 make some sense. It leaves enough infrastructure and ports and agriculture and um people and economic firms and industries in each of those regions um I think the smallest would be about 65 million um up to about 75 million, something like that. Um, economically, they would be numbers one, four through eight in world size of GDP. China would then become number one, Japan would become number two, Germany would become number three, and then the new five nations would be five, uh, four through eight in terms of GDP. Uh, there are some problems in moving nuclear weapons around and differences in military bases that I try and address some, but that's, that's the basic idea. Um, you're getting more or less roughly population equal nations, with real substantial bargaining power in the international sphere and sufficient um, internal resources to be able to carry forward uh the 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 uh the economy and defense of major nation states on the world stage.
0: Huh. Uh I want to um that's that's really helpful uh as a specific illustration of how this could look um I wanted to uh ask you about a uh that you make in the book, which I found uh, really interesting. Uh, you write that uh, the sort of traumatic uh, memories of the Civil War uh, uh, taint uh, all thoughts of uh, uh, political uh, breakup and that there's a sort of, uh, that that's in some ways making a mistake. And could you say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so that's a, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because there's this word secession, yeah. And it's a very freighted word in American rhetoric because we tend to think there's only one secession. That's the secession of the Confederate States of America from the United States of America after the election of Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the 19th century. Right. And that, of course, ensued then in a long civil war, leaving some six or seven hundred thousand people dead, untallied amounts of material wealth um, utterly destroyed, and so on and so forth. We think of that's that's what secession is, but of course our first secession was the American Revolution. We call it the Revolutionary War, but it's actually a secessionary war. The thirteen colonies seceded from the British Empire. I mean, it was just as simple as that. I mean, it was a war for secession. Now we don't call it a secession, but it was one. So we have these two examples of secessions, and they're both major. Um, they they're they they're, they both involve a lot of death, a lot of organized violence war, massed armies, and so on and so forth. But that's not the only way to do secession. There are lots of secessions that happen totally peacefully. I'll give, let's just a, sim- a simple uh, example. Um, Iceland used to be part of Denmark. Iceland is now its own nation state. It seceded from Denmark, but multilaterally, not unilaterally. In other words, Denmark agreed and Denmark didn't send any troops and all the rest of it, they just, the lawyers sat down and the politicians sat down and eventually the citizens ratified that secession. So one part seceded from another. There's another word that's super important and that's really what I'm arguing for is not a secession, but a dissolution. Dissolution is when one nation state breaks up into several new parts. None of those parts take on the international legal personality of the old part. Um, Don't worry about all that technical detail. The Soviet Union dissolved uh, basically from 1989 through 1991. About less than a thousand people died, with one of the two major nuclear superpowers of the world dissolving from one nation into 15 new nation states, less than about a thousand people died. And most of those people um, were in one activity around 350 died in Belarus. Um, It was not massed armies fighting against each other and slaughtering each other in order to secure political divorce. It was basically peaceful dissolution, mutually negotiated dissolution. That's not the only example, but it's certainly the most um, um, attractive example of what's possible. It's possible for superpowers to mutually negotiate a political dissolution into many new nation states. Um, It's also possible for that to go horribly wrong. The former Yugoslavia was one nation and now it's seven nations. And it was a lot of slaughter and a lot of genocide and much, much ugliness on the way to that. And we're not even sure it's quite done. Um, so dissolution can happen through massive military violence and um, atrocities, or it can happen through n- mutual negotiation. Secession is the same way. Secession can happen um, through violence, like we had in the Civil War, where we didn't have a secession, but we fought against one. In the Revolutionary War, where we did have a secession and we fought for it, right? Um, but it can also happen peacefully. Um, political divorce is possible peacefully. And that's a really important lesson from world history that we Americans, when we only think about our own history, often miss.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I think the Soviet example actually uh can be read in more than one direction because there's plenty of people who tell you that uh the current Ukraine war uh in some way is the uh, Legacy of uh either forced divorce, or forced divorce or an ill thought through divorce or you know kind of dissolution of the Soviet Union where uh, the elites disagreed with each other and the uh, elites in the population uh, uh couldn't figure out the uh distribution of the resources that came from the divorce uh, uh, etc. So the Soviet example, I think, is in some ways ambivalent. I think the philosophical point uh, still very much holds, namely that we have a kind of um, um, prejudice against the idea because of our own uh, uh, history. I think that's a really, really, um, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I guess going back to something that you were saying, um, well, actually, let me ask you something else. I mean, um, there is some uh, pretty interesting uh, literature uh, that is suggesting, for example, that in the German case, um, I think you and I have talked about this uh, in the past, I forget the name of the uh, German scholar who wrote about this, but the argument to some extent uh, that she makes about uh, German history and the rise of the Nazis is, uh, that a huge um, factor in the rise of the Nazis was uh, the institutional uh, failure of uh, uh, democratic uh, uh, governance that um, that in and of itself can be uh, uh, a factor in the rise of extremism when democracy, And democratic institutions consistently fail to solve people's problems and get the, you know, get the trash uh, uh, removed and get uh, crucial regulations passed, et cetera, et cetera, that that, independently of anything else, um, can generate the rise of extremism. Uh, Do you think something like that is going on here? Is that part
1: of what? Yeah, I do. I do. I talk about this in sort of three different registers. I mean, my main focus is about sort of democratic backsliding and the crisis of basic electoral democracy, representative Republican democracy. That is where we elect our leaders. That's that's the thing I'm focused most on. But it's really important to see that the status quo trajectory we're on is very dangerous. Um, And this is made most evident in the sort of scholarship on um, comparing um, levels of um, violence and how civil wars start. Um, so, um, I do think that crises of governability can increase dispositions to violence. Dispositions to violence can negatively increase democratic backsliding, right? So, that we have these sort of three different sort of phenomena that are causally interrelated we have democratic backsliding, we have crises of governance, and we have violent extremism. Right. And those three go together. And I think it's really important to get back to a thing I was saying before. And when we compare our baseline to what we would risk in political divorce, we would surely, surely risk in the short term increases in sporadic political violence. Right. I I don't think that there's any gain saying that. I don't think we risk major, you know, civil wars with massed armies. I think that that's not really a consistent thought. I mean, I know it's a fear, but it doesn't make any sense on any kind of planning I could see of how this would go forward um, or scenario scheming. But we do risk increased political violence, and we do risk increases in loss of governability. Now, um, those are interrelated. Why? Well, it turns out there aren't many factors that consistently predict increases in civil violence. One factor is the move of a regime from either a stable democracy or a stable um, uh, uh, autocracy to something in the middle. And that risk is increased slightly when it's from democracy to what's called often electoral authoritarianism or anocracy, or there's lots of technical terms here, but it's something less than democracy, something that looks like democracy, but isn't really because the same people keep winning over and over and over because they've rigged the rules. That's that democratic backsliding. Democratic backsliding is a consistent predictor of increased civil violence. Now, you'd think that like poverty would be or, um, you know, changes in the environment would be or stuff like that. And it turns out they're not good predictors of increased civil violence. So democratic backsliding is one of them. And the other main predictor, is increased what's often called factionalization amongst the population. That is where ordinary citizens and especially political elites see themselves as a specific kind of person that has diametrically opposed interests to other people. Usually that's racial or ethnic or religious. It can be other things, but mostly it's those kinds of factionalization where you have, for instance, Politicians and citizens of one ethnicity who think their interests are diametrically opposed to the citizens of another ethnicity, where you get factionalization of political competition. Another way to put this is people on red teams hate people on blue teams and people on blue teams hate people on red teams or people with stars on their jersey versus people with circles on their jersey, right? When you get that kind of factionalization, you actually get um, significantly increased risk for civil violence and civil war. Right. Now, my reading of the United States is that both of those factors are true. That's not me alone. That's what the civil violence people think. Yeah. Right? So how do you get out of that loop? Well, why do people start using violence? They start using violence when they don't think that the political system gives them any hope of getting what they want. When democracy doesn't work, you actually get increased risk for civil violence. Right. So my proposal, I think it is, now this might be crazy, but I actually think it's true. My proposal would be a relief valve from threats and risks of civil violence because it would give hopes to people that they might be able to get a governance structure and a democratic structure where they can get what they want out of it where they don't feel that with respect to the incredibly ossified and non-working American government.
0: So, I mean, in some way, those two factors, uh, faction and democratic backsliding, I'm assuming you're arguing work in tension with each other, that part of why the democratic backsliding is happening is because of the increase of factionalism, that part of why people lose hope in their ability to get anything done within the rules is because the factionalism sort of uh, uh, makes the rules ineffective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm more on the, if the rules are bad, they encourage conflict entrepreneurs to use the rules to stay in power, even though they don't have the support of either pluralities or majorities. Mm -hmm. That gives a very strong incentive to whip up factionalization, right? Mm -hmm. So the democratic backsliding, that is, when you have a situation where people are incentivized to stay in power without majority support because they have the levers of power in a way that they can do that, they also have an incentive to undermine commitments to democracy. And one of the things they're going to do with that, good political entrepreneurs, it seems, are very good at whipping up factionalization whipping up these hatreds yeah so you do get a kind of uh the the, a lot of the literature uses terms like doom loops and doom spirals and negative ratchet spirals and stuff like that so you get these mutually interacting downward tending ratchets that are very hard to reverse
0: Hmm. uh yeah let me um Let me go back to something that you were saying uh, earlier in passing, and you and I have talked about this in the past. So some of the systemic effects uh, on the international system of a uh, proposal like this, as you said, if the United States broke uh, up into um, five regions, which would be four to eight, respectively, in uh, uh, global GDP and uh, uh, other measures, Um, By default, uh, we would would be handing uh, uh, over um, global dominance to China, for example. Um, How does that figure uh, uh, into the argument? Namely, uh, the world hegemon, uh, the residual uh, uh, world police person at this moment uh, is still uh, a somewhat dysfunctional uh, liberal democracy. That would change. Um, is, that, is that a concern or that just is what it
1: is? I think here, you know, it bumps up against the limits of my kind of um, knowledge and intuition. So I can say a few things, but I, I'm not going to say anything very definitively here. Um, one, it seems clearly that's the trajectory, whether we want it or not, with the one United States. So what's the baseline? Right. The baseline on our current trajectory is, you know, Anthony Blinken's off to China this uh, next week. Um, you know, that's the first time in a long time. Things aren't going great. It doesn't really look like the US has an awful lot of leverage over um, what China does and what China wants. And I suspect that Chinese power will keep increasing over time. I don't know if that's true, but that's that's what it looks like as a kind of lay person from here. Right. Um, so it's not like this is, some radical change in the overall um, trajectory. Now, it's true that five United, it's five post-Splitzville nations would have less power individually against China than one United States would, if one United States is actually good at carrying out foreign policy. Yeah. That doesn't look so great because, I mean, if I were a foreign leader, I'd be like, okay, well, we're just gonna get a new regime in two years. And that new regime is gonna be diametrically opposed to this one, right? So we're not a very reliable strategic actor on the world stage um, on some degrees. On military stuff, we're pretty reliable. It's pretty clear, but on on many of the uh, important diplomatic and economic um, counts, we're not very reliable partners. Now, the different nations, the new nations, the new Splitsville nations would surely, some of them would have treaties together, right? NATO is an example of a sub-world, but nevertheless transnational treaty that has a fair amount of bargaining power um, and actually is increased courtesy of Russia's war against Ukraine, right? Um, which is a multination nation um, pact for certain kinds of interventions i would expect that you would see similar kinds of multinational pacts both between the some of the if not all of the new post splitsville nations as well as between those post splitsville nations and other nations and other treaty organizations i'd expect for instance that most of them would join nato right so i don't i'm not sure how much change it is not like each one like goes into its own hole and becomes, you know, a completely autochthonous actor on the world stage. I mean, Europe is a model for various kinds of transnational organization that makes, for instance, the power of Italy much greater than it actually is by belonging to the EU and by belonging to NATO. Yeah. So some of that is still going to be a kind of, you know, West-East bilateralism. That's not going to change that much. Now, that's about all I can say. Um, one, actually I'll say one other thing Where the nuclear weapons go in the new nations is a huge issue. If you just look at where the nuclear weapons are in my five nation map, two of the new five nations don't have any nuclear weapons installations at all, and three do. So you could have some movement there so that all five did, um, or something like that. But then of course, you know, you have five new nuclear nations on the international scene. Is that a larger threat or a smaller threat to attempts by other actors to do military things in the international context? I'm not sure, it seems like it goes both ways. So I I don't know quite what to say there.
0: Yeah, and certainly the divorce negotiations about how that would administratively be managed would be pretty complicated because even yes. though there's nuclear installations, uh, in some places, the controls are centralized uh, and would have to be uh, uh decentralized. decentralized yep. and you know, people will sort of be, learning the lesson of Ukraine, uh, uh, regretting giving up its own, uh, uh, you know, nuclear weapons.
1: That's a really good point, Nir. It goes back to your earlier point about the Ukraine, the current Ukraine war in Ukraine as a sort of continuation, perhaps, of the divorce decree. Yeah. I'm not sure it is. I kind of disagree with that reading of things. It's 30 years out, you know, I mean, yeah. imperial ambitions are imperial ambitions. Um, but Right. You make a really good point that people are going to take that lesson from the dissolution of the Soviet Union that you don't want to give up nuclear weapons because it is um a bargaining, an ultimate bargaining chip. Yeah. Later yeah. on.
0: Um, you know, the the other thing that's uh sort of uh striking, you know, um is that it's geographically and physically possible to have a divorce here unlike you know in other places so you you go to somewhere like you know Israel Palestine um there's almost this sort of uh pantian imperative for uh those populations to um you know get along because they can't split in some very fundamental way uh certainly uh, uh not anymore um it's possible to do here geographically, obviously difficult, et cetera, et cetera. So that in and of itself is an interesting, simple geographical reality, namely the very fact of the uh, geographical possibility of doing this has sort of moral implications.
1: Yeah, I don't think I had thought about that way and that's partly the problem of my provincialism in this project. I mean, I've kind of really designed a project that's only, oriented towards the United States. In other words, I'm not sort of recommending Mm -hmm. national dissolution or national recombinations for other, you know, I'm not making a general philosophical, but it's a really important um, point that 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 basic geography, the extent of the resources in the United States, the size of the resources in the United States, right? The wealth of the United States, the large population of the United States, these things all make possible some kind of a dissolution into several new nation states. Surely it would be really dumb to dissolve into counties. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what there are, 2,500 counties or something in the United States. Imagine yeah. 2,500 new nations. and that would just be like strategically idiotic. But if you did even like my five nation map, every nation has access, as you point out, um, to, for instance, oceans. right? Everybody, not everyone has saltwater ports. Um the upper the upper Middle West would not have saltwater ports, but going out the St. Lawrence Seaway, it does have access to the Atlantic Ocean. And that's a you know, that's a major thing to think about, right? We have, as it were, the ability, like you say, to actually geographically split up the nations into viable nation states. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that does change the moral, um right, uh the the, the moral opportunity structures.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um I think I'm beginning to uh uh understand the answer to this, but let me ask uh anyway. So, um sort of a politi- sort of pure political philosophy uh question for you. So, somebody who is a sort of follower of Carl Schmitt would say, you know, the the very basis of politics, the very basis of the political impulse is having uh, uh, a political rival. Uh, Part of our uh, own um, uh, uh, divisive moment uh, uh, in American history is that we uh, don't have any more external enemies, so we've turned uh, uh, on each other. That's what keeps us uh, uh, alive uh, as a polity and uh, you're breaking up the country is not going to uh, resolve that basic impulse. I mean, I take it that what y- your axiom about politics is that they have to do primarily with the possibility of effective deliberation based on rules and that that's what your recommendation is. Uh, makes possible. So is this just a difference between worldview uh, with this Schmidian notion that you need uh, a rival for politics, or is it a practical uh, uh, argument?
1: Um, I think the the Schmidian point is is maybe downstream of my point. Um, What do I mean by that? I mean, Politics is for negotiating our disagreements. I want to resist the word deliberation because I'm trying not to rely on that at all. I'm just doing representative democracy. You vote for representatives and they do what they do and they pass laws. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, they get the executive to act and the judiciary follows those laws. You know, that's that's the basic idea. Um, how those decisions are made, what the institutional structures for people getting elected are, makes very big difference to what kinds of enemies political entrepreneurs are going to use. So I think Schmidt's point is right, maybe about how politicians operate in the real world. They've got to have enemies, they've got to have, you know, affect that they can mobilize their voters. Um it's not about persuading people. It's about mobilizing people against enemies, stuff like that. We've clearly seen that in our politics. That's that's a that's a feature of our politics now or a phenomenon of our politics. But The way in which that can be used to undermine basic commitment to democracy is only when the rules of the game make it so that people can gain and maintain power without democratic support Mm -hmm. against the wishes of the demos, as it were. Mm. And unfortunately, we're just saddled with some parts of our constitution that systematically encourage people to gain and maintain power without the support of electoral majorities or electoral pluralities. Yeah. So it seems to me that the friend-enemy rhetorical politics that Schmidt has focused on might be true about retail politicking, but how that politicking works and what works in that politicking really depends on some basic choices of rules so let me give you an example just to make this a little bit down down to earth um the way you set up elections first past the post winner takes all or proportional systems makes a difference you either get with first past the post which is our system winner take all you get two party systems two parties with plurality, with proportional representation, um, within districts where you don't have winner takes all and it's not first past the post, you get multi-party um, democracies, You know, usually five or six. If you set up the rules right, the rules really do matter here. Yeah, It turns out that the psychological and political dynamics of two players is much different than the dynamics of four or five players. Because in a four or five party system or player system, even in an election, it no longer makes sense to merely demonize your opponent because you might might need your opponent's votes in order to get what you want done. In a two party system, there's only one choice, one or the other, the devil I know or the devil I hate, right? And that tends to, lead to very much more vituperative politics, much more hate-filled politics, much more demonization politics, partisanship, and so on and so forth. It inc- Here's another way to say it. It encourages specific kinds of political entrepreneurs,
0: hmm. ones
1: who are very good at stirring up hatred emotions. Hmm. When you have four or five candidates or four or five parties, you actually don't have the same kind of dynamics. Now, that's just a little... Wonky, weird electoral system rule change. But Schmidt's idea that all politics is like two-player systems, not quite true. Huh. So I actually think that the psychological stuff that Schmidt is pointing to is, empirically accurate about much politics, but you can very much change the dynamics of that politics by simple, not simple, but you know, wonky changes of rules of how people get elected, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering combining that with one of your earlier points, if the rules uh, fail to uh, deliver uh, the actual management of life uh, in a four or five party system, uh, would that be as effective as generating hate between those factions? Uh, as uh, the same kind of failure was when there's only two factions. So in some ways, uh, can there be a kind of uh, original role uh, uh, just for uh, uh, political paralysis uh, and delivering the attitudes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess here I wanna step back and maybe say, well, kind of the proof is in the pudding. Right. Um, So here we have to get into sort of more contested value judgments and empirical judgments about what's going on in the real world. Um, I'll just point to one that seems really salient to me. Um, There was a global pandemic. And um, I don't mean to be too blunt here. But the death rate in the United States was terrible, even compared to our closest kinds of nations like Canada. For sure, compared to European nations and way out of whack with Asian nations. Right? We slaughtered lots of our population. Why did that happen? That looks like a classic governance failure to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So then I want to say, well, what's different about our political system? Why is why is it not working to deliver basic governance goods? Because I take it that, you know, keeping your population alive is a basic governance, governance yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, there, you know, right? we didn't do that well on. We did amazingly technologically and we did pretty well fiscally, right? So, we did a pretty good job of maintaining our economy and we came up with two of the three effective vaccines through our technological and those were both governance wins because both of those were federal government Um, uh, achievements. So I don't want to say we were terrible across the board, but keeping people alive, we did really poorly. I mean, something like um, half as well as Canada and something like one-eighth as well as Asia and something like one-fourth as well as Europe. I mean, our death rates were really strikingly high um, per 100,000 compared to those other uh, regions and countries. Um, And that doesn't seem to be an accident to me. That seems to be a governance failure. So I think that, yeah, I mean, um, uh, if we continue to have governance failures, people get less enthused about democracy. There's more room for people to be anti-democratic who are political entrepreneurs and political elites and continue to undermine faith in um, the ability of democracy to do stuff and the ability of basically... Political officials to hold free and fair elections.
0: Yeah, yeah, Chris. I know our time is almost up, so let me let me ask you uh, in closing: Are you any more or less optimistic about the uh, argument of the book when uh, than when you first started uh, writing it? Uh, Trump lost the election. Uh, who knows, but seems to have uh, uh, lost some uh, uh, steam after the midterm election, may or may not uh, um, be poised to uh, come back. Has anything uh, changed in the United States to make you a little more optimistic or less optimistic about the uh, basic argument of the book?
1: Um, As I was completing writing the book last summer, Basically, I completed writing it and, you know, I mean, revising it and stuff like that and getting all my edits done. And in September uh, of 2022, of course, um, you know, um, the current administration had had a fair number of decent policy wins. Right. Um, So the inflation reduction, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. um, And uh, more recently, of course, um, you know, the the staring down of the debt crisis crisis. uh, uh well that, you know, those look like um, temporary wins. But it seems to me that the Democratic structures are not any better. We haven't done anything about changing um, partisan districting. We haven't done anything to change the, you know, the disproportionate power in the Senate. We haven't done anything and we can't do anything to change how hard it is to change our Constitution. Uh, we haven't done anything to change, as it were, the number of veto players who can sink any kinds of attempts to do, um um basic governance so i'm i'm um i i, I don't i it, things look better than i than the l- less rosy picture i give in the book maybe slightly but i don't see that the 2024 or 2028 presidential elections they seem just as much a threat to have some kind of electoral authoritarianism um involved as they did when I started writing the book in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I see the threat is just as high. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the machinations are and I don't think it's just about Trump. I really don't think it's just about Trump. It's Trump isn't is a product of our bad rules
0: right.
1: <laughs> He's a good conflict entrepreneur taking good advantage of the system we have, which is Rube Goldberg enough that we could have real disasters in 2024 and 2028. And they're not just gonna come from Republicans because undermining democracy is a tit-for-tat game. So Democrats are gonna do the same thing. Um, I'm not that optimistic in the long-term about the prospects for continued electoral democracy in America.
0: Well, on that optimistic note, thank you. This was fascinating. It's a really important book, really well-written that should be. Widely, widely read, and I hope it gets um, the attention that it deserves. Thank you, Chris.
1: Thanks very much for the time and for all the really interesting questions. I really, I I appreciate it very much.
0: All right, bye-bye. All right. Thank you for listening to
1: Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, Check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.